Tonight we're going to look at the last provision, the last statement that's made to him that overcomes. As Jesus related these to these seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. So if you'll turn with me to Revelation chapter 3 and verse 21, we'll read that last statement and promise that he has made to them. And we'll consider it this evening. My expectation is that we'll have one more lesson next week, next Wednesday, as we kind of wrap up, put together, kind of collate all of these things and see how they apply, where we fit in, where we might fit in, where we could fit in, all of those things as we consider that next week. But let's close the door on this last uh, statement here in Revelation 3, verse 21 tonight, where it says, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on His throne. We'll bow our heads once again and ask the Lord to bless here this evening. Father, we thank You, Lord, for the magnitude, Father, of the provision that is presented here in this brief statement. Father, the vastness of the gift that is offered here to Him that overcomes. Father, help us to understand just what a provision, what a gift, what a blessing this is. All of them, certainly, that you have presented to us are all gifts. But, Father, help us tonight, as we consider this, to recognize the magnitude and the eternal glory that is provided and the capability of sharing a throne with Jesus. Bless us tonight in this understanding and be glorified as we consider it, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, over the course of these lessons, as we've looked at these seven churches here, uh, Jesus promises him that overcomes a number of different things, as we've considered uh, at length and a number of different times. Some of the things that he presents, uh, to eat of the tree of life, to not be hurt by the second death, and so on. Again, as we've considered a number of times, those things will be enjoyed by all who will accept and believe in the Lord Jesus. And other things... I hate to say it, but a a small minority, small minority of God's people will lay hold of those things, such as to be a pillar in the temple uh, of the Lord, uh, have written upon them the name of the new Jerusalem and of Christ himself. Well, this statement that we just read here in verse 21 is certainly, well, one of those latter ones uh, that not everyone is going to enjoy. Not all of God's people will be able to share that throne with the Lord Jesus, and as As I prayed here, and as I've considered this for myself at length, and looked at it, and considered and reconsidered it, I believe that this one, all this statement here that that Jesus presents, is perhaps, as far as symbology goes, and just what all it represents, again, as I prayed a moment ago, I think that it's as representative of the fully victorious, full, first-rank overcomer as, as any of them are, in sharing the throne with the Lord Jesus Christ. It represents what we're looking for. It represents the goal of goals. I mean, certainly you can consider the crown and those things that are offered and those other things that are, are, are tokens and, and indicators of those ones who have been fully victorious and lived out that overcoming life. But to sit in and share the throne of Jesus, I mean, that's the entire thing. It's the... It's the it. It's the wonder of everything. And again, I can't go on. I, yeah, uh, hyperbole is impossible when you're talking about certain things about the Lord, but I should stop nonetheless. Now, that being said, it's interesting that he presents it to the church that is known for being lukewarm. 
Lukewarm Laodicea, we understand. If you look at verse 15, as always, as he stated to every... Um, Lorraine, could I bug you for the click? There we go. Sorry, maybe my clicker was just not working. Uh, in verse 15, we see him say, as he said to the six other churches there, he begins by saying, I know your works. And then he expresses what those works indicate about this church, that you are neither cold nor hot. He said, I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, so then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Now, I'm not going to get too deeply into this uh, this evening, but I'm just going to say, suffice it to say, that Laodicea was at best approaching their faith with a sort of eh, attitude. Uh, at best, this is the representation here. At best, they were neither on fire for the Lord, and neither were they any kind of refreshing or refreshment, uh, cold in their calculation of the word. That's how I've looked at it a number of different times. Being on fire for the Lord with a passion for the things of God, and also being very, very coldly by the book, you might say. Cold in the study of Scripture. Both things can be applicable for, for different scenarios as the Lord leads us. But never does He want us to be. Well, that milk toast in between mush that hasn't committed to any, uh, well, any leading of the Lord. Just to sit back and, again, just kind of be, well, like one of those old tasteless, overripe tomatoes of faith, you might say, where there's nothing but just grainy mealiness, something that the Lord well, spits out here. Um, now, they claimed his name, we can read here about Laodicea. They claimed the name of Jesus. They believed themselves, as we go on to read here in verse 17, they believed themselves to be well off spiritually, this church did. Uh, he says, you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. But we, well, we see plainly, according to what Jesus goes on to say, that they, well, they were not well off spiritually. You do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Do you know anyone, any ones perhaps, that don't recognize who they are, who are so, I say blissfully, but I say that firmly tongue-in-cheek, blissfully unaware of who they are? Self-unaware. It's good to be self-aware. Not self-centered, not self-focused, but it's good to be self-aware. Who you are, how people might perceive you. They say perception is reality. That's not entirely true, but there's validity to that statement. I want to be perceived as someone who has a heart for the Lord. I don't want to misspeak or, or uh, misbehave, so to speak, if it would lead someone in the wrong direction. Even if what I were to do or say wasn't necessarily wrong, if it might be taken wrong. I want to understand this. I want to know this. If I'm offending somebody in a way that I'm not intending, I want to know that and be self-aware. These ones here were so entirely self-unaware, they had no idea. While they thought they were rich, wealthy, and had need of nothing, they were exactly the opposite, Jesus says. They were poor, miserable, wretched, blind, naked. They had no idea that this was the situation. Uh, I could turn to Romans 2 and verse 17, and I, I, you can write that down if you want to, but I'll just read to you real quick, where he speaks to those Jews, well, who thought highly of themselves. He says that they were confident that they themselves were guides to the blind, he said, a light to those who are in darkness, fancied themselves instructors, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. But he says, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? Are you so blissfully self-unaware? 
that you're teaching all of this and making all of these statements and, and, and proclaiming that you are of this ilk and, and you're anything but? You are hypocritical, you might even go on to say. It's dangerous. It's dangerous to be self-unaware, to be so satisfied or content. Now, probably most of the time, people aren't just sitting back saying, eh, man, I'm good, you know, I'm just, I've got this down. But this whole Christian thing, no problemo to me, and, and I mean, I've got the bride just wrapped up. I do remember sitting in church, I was about 12 years old, and, and a woman gave a testimony in church, they were visiting, and she said, I'm just so grateful, well, I'm in the bride, I'm grateful, and I was like, oh! and I waited for someone to, to say something, and <laughs> you know, even at 12 years old, I recognized that was... That was pretty something to say. And Brother David said something kind from, from the pulpit. He says, well, we certainly pray that that will be our outcome or something along those lines. I wasn't paying attention so much by that point because I was focused on, <laughs> on what they were saying. It's a dangerous place to be self-unaware. It's a dangerous place to be overconfident. I'm not going to say that we shouldn't be confident in our faith, confident in our Lord to finish the work that he has begun in us. But we need to be self-aware. And these ones were not. They thought they had no need of anything, which means that they believed that they had everything. Uh, Jesus told them, no. No, you don't have everything. And so he demonstrated and showed them what the true meaning of, quote-unquote, everything would be. And that's what he says there in verse 21. He says, to him who overcomes, let me tell you something, you who, well, you who are not on your way to overcoming in the state that you are right now, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. And I will tell you something, when he makes such a direct correlation and says, here's what I have for you who does this in the manner in which I was given this for doing the same thing, that's a comparing almost a one-to-one of us to the Lord Jesus. And that's something you need to dig into. And that's something you need to take advantage of that presentation there. And so that's what we're going to dig into, this promise here tonight. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I overcame. How you might overcome like Jesus did. And how you might be rewarded as Jesus was rewarded. That's a big promise. And that's one that I don't want to skirt so let's take the time here tonight and look at this this evening. Now, to understand the significance that I've been trying to lay out for this promise, the magnitude of this promise, you have to understand first what a throne is, right? As I always do, I surf the internet looking at throne after throne after throne from different cultures, different civilizations, different time periods, different, yeah, and all kinds of different countries, and thrones are kind of cool. I mean, they are. Thrones are a special chair used by a ruler, if you want to look at it the simplest definition. Others say it's a chair of state of a sovereign or a high dignitary. It can be more ceremonial than it is actually functional. And if you look at a number of the different thrones that have gone through all of these different societies throughout history, you'll see, man, you don't want to sit on that for very long. They tend to be very upright, very rigid, very ornate, not at all suitable for comfort. Uh, that being said, they represent or are intended to represent power. They're intended to represent sovereignty. They're intended to represent the sheer capability of whomever sits on that throne. 
Uh, oftentimes, they refer to the British monarchy as, or the queen specifically. The king now. Man, I'm never going to get past that. The crown, right? The crown stands before. The crown goes before. The sovereignty of the crown, whoever wears it. So, so we can kind of look at the throne in the same way. Now, you understand that it's Jesus on the throne who makes that throne. It's Jesus himself, uh, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We know he is sovereign. And that throne is where, well, it's his. It's, it's his power that is, that is exhibited. It's not just merely the crown of the British monarchy. It is Jesus' place. The Lord's throne, his Father's throne. Uh, it's the one who sits in it. Uh, But that being said, we understand the power that's represented there. It's all throughout Scripture. You can turn to Psalms. We'll spend a little bit of time in Psalms, and we're going to spend a lot of time in the book of Hebrews this evening. So we can be ready to jump over to the book of Hebrews. The throne of heaven, well documented in Scripture. We understand it's God's, and it is above and over all. Presented abundantly in the book of Psalms. Perhaps because a throne is something rather poetic, Something rather royal, something rather regal, and it presents itself again as a metaphor of power and sovereignty. So the Psalms are a good place for that as you sing of such things, and they did in those days as well. Uh, Not surprisingly, King David wrote a lot of the Psalms, so he spoke, well, from a certain natural context, didn't he? Uh, We see the sovereignty of, of God's judgment presented in the throne. In Psalm 11, number four, or verse number four, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. He sees, he sits on that throne, he observes and he visualizes and he, well, nothing escapes his sight. He has that omnipresence, omniscience, if you want to use those $10 words. All-knowing, sees all, knows all. In Psalm 103 and verse 19, we see that, It denotes the sovereignty of God's power there. The Lord has established His throne in heaven and His kingdom rules over all. Simple, uh, to the point type of statement there. His kingdom is above and over. And Jesus, the Lord God, He sits above and over that entire kingdom. He is the sovereign. And we can turn to Psalm 97. Ultimately, the righteousness that is presented by this throne is going to be visible to all, even those ones who don't recognize the authority of that throne at this time. Everyone will see it. And it doesn't change the fact that his authority is above and over all even now. Psalm 97, verse 1. The Lord reigns. No getting around it. Let the earth rejoice. Let the multitude of isles be glad. Clouds and darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. A fire goes before him and burns up his enemies round about. His lightnings light the world, the earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. The heavens declare his righteousness and all the peoples see his glory. Certainly this will be so when the Lord comes and he demonstrates and shows himself to all who will see whether they're looking for him or not. It is a superior throne. Make no bones about it. It is above all. And Jesus had a part in it in the Old Testament, has a part in it in the present day, and he certainly will in days to come. And so to understand what Jesus is offering there to him that overcomes, now we need to understand what it was that he had part in, in or has part in, in that throne that is over and above everything. 
Now, uh, we understand, we spoke about it recently during the Yuletide season, uh, we talked about Jesus emptying himself into the form of that child. We spoke about him not considering equality with God as something to be grasped at. Something to be reached for, something to be clutched and brought to himself. That's in Philippians 2.6. Jesus, as part of that triune God, made that part of his plan, his plan with the Father and with the Spirit for the redemption of man, for the cleansing of man, for the rewarding of man, for all of those things set in motion before time even began. Jesus' part there was to submit himself to his Father. We understand that. He said, I will voluntarily take that place. Again, not thinking that equality with God was something to lay hold of and grasp to. And he submitted himself to his father. And he lived out that life of perfection. We understand this. Now, what we don't oftentimes consider is that the Lord doing that, the Lord Jesus taking that form, he was rewarded for his life. You ever consider that? That the Lord Jesus himself, the Son of God, the perfect one, was rewarded himself for the life that he lived. If you look there in verse 21 of our opening passage there, we see that he wants to reward him that overcomes. And how does he say he wants to do it? Part of the reward is, I'll grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne as a result of that overcoming. Jesus needed to be rewarded? (laughs) Just saying those words makes me think, well, of course he does. You know? <laughs> of course he needed it. He was perfect. How could it be just to not reward the Son of God? But it just seemed to me that perhaps it's not a thought we consider oftentimes. The fact that Jesus himself overcame. Well, of course he did. He's perfect. I mean, he, he practically was born, as oftentimes people say. He was born perfect and, and he was God in that baby and, and he was probably you know, standing like this and blessing people as they came to visit him. The wise men came and knelt and he reached out in his solemn wisdom. I've heard people teach such things before. That the baby looked and looked at them with such wisdom and depth of understanding, universal knowledge. And that's how they fell before him because he, well, he was more than just a baby. Well, yes, he was more than just a baby, but we understand he grew in wisdom. He grew in stature. He grew in understanding. He was completed. I'm getting way ahead of myself. He was perfected as he suffered through this life. Suffered in dealing with sin. Suffered in being immersed in the sinful, among the sinful. He suffered in a lot of different ways, certainly. More than just at the cross, though that was the culmination of it. He grew, is what he did. The Lord, in whatever whatever manner or method the Lord worked this out... He allowed Jesus to experience as we experience. And certainly he was without sin. We understand this. That's in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, weaknesses, but was in all points tempted, tested as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 4.15 Jesus came, and in this life, as he grew in understanding, grew in wisdom, grew in stature, physically, mentally, emotionally, I guess you might say. I don't want to get too far, dig into things that we can't know. But as he grew in wisdom and in stature, he learned some things. And he overcame these things. 
He said, as I overcame those obstacles that were placed in front of me, as I overcame Satan 40 days in the wilderness and dealing and being tempted by Satan, as I overcame being tested and pushed and betrayed and all of these things, Jesus overcame just as we are called to overcome those things that he's put in front of us. He was without sin. He failed in none of those tests, not a one. Uh, But not only was he just perfect, Well, as we go on in Hebrews chapter 5, I told you we were going to be spending some time here. In Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 8, we recognize that he was perfected. Doesn't mean that he was lacking. Understand this. Jesus wasn't lacking in perfection. Okay, this means completed. His work was completed. His efforts as he moved on in his perfection were completed, but there was learning that took place on the way. It says, though he was a son in Hebrews 5 and verse 8, yet he learned obedience. He subjected himself, it says, when he was 12 years old and he got separated from his, his mom and dad and they found him in the temple and they questioned when they saw, wow, he understands things and he's asking questions and he's having these conversations with these ones in the temple. And they took, them, took him back, he said, don't you know I need to be about my father's business? As they traveled back, Mary pondered on it, and Joseph was pondering on the things that were presented. Well, Jesus subjected himself to them. He, he learned subjection, and he applied those things. He learned obedience here, it says, by the things which he suffered. He learned as he went how to take everything. Again, I'm not saying he wasn't perfect before, but in every opportunity that something was brought before the man, the Son of God, He approached those things, and as they came to him, well, he obeyed the Lord in every last one of them. And he learned and he demonstrated that obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, having been completed, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So in those three decades that he lived on this earth, he moved forward in wisdom and in stature. And with every opportunity and with every testing, with every suffering, He learned obedience, bore out obedience, bore out his perfection, bore out until that completion was done. And when he bowed his head and said, it is finished, it was indeed. It was complete. It's an interesting concept to me to consider that Jesus learned anything and was completed over the course of time. But it helps us to understand who he was as a man. He learned obedience, grew in stature and wisdom, was completed Again, not that he was ever imperfect, but his life and his work needed to be completed in totality as his father allowed different things to come into his life. And Jesus dealt with those things and indeed, as he calls us to do, overcame in those things perfectly, without flaw and without sin. Uh, He completed his walk, completed his life, uh, overcoming as he wants us to. In Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10 We see that it was fitting for this to be so. It was suitable for this to be so. Appropriate for this to be so. It says in Hebrews 2.10, It was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things. He is the Almighty. He is the Son of God. In bringing many sons to glory, that's you and me, it was fitting to make the captain of our salvation, their salvation, perfect through sufferings. Again, completing that work through the sufferings that he endured. Jesus overcame all of those things, and he was himself rewarded for that perfect walk. And among those rewards that he had was to share the throne of his father, 
as we read in our opening passage there, where it says, I will give him that overcomes uh, to sit on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Now, if you look in Hebrews chapter 1, while we're there, in verses 3 and 4, it says, Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they, he sat down with his father, sat down in his throne as a reward. Hebrews 8.1, I'm going through these rather quickly for time's sake. Hebrews 8.1 says this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. I looked at a number of different thrones like I told you. And there are a number of different ones from that time period where they were more rather than just thrones. They were benches. Uh, what's the word for it? Divan? Divan? I'm not sure, but it looks kind of like a couch, a love seat, if you will. And historians tell me that, well, there are often times where when they would have, well, the meeting of regents, the meeting of royalty, that they would have them in a sign of respect, have them sit with them on a larger throne. I'm not going to look too much into that. What I know is that the Lord said, you'll sit at my right hand. There is no greater place than the right hand of the Lord God other than the Father himself. And we know that the Lord Jesus submitted himself to that. And he is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. That's what Mark 16 told us happened. So then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus was given this reward to sit in his Father's throne, to sit as near to him as can be seated. That was part of his reward for overcoming as he did. And so, when someone is given a good gift, perhaps some of you have been given good gifts recently during this Christmas season, what do you oftentimes do with a good gift that you have been given? Now, if you've been given a car, I'm not going to say that you would share it, but if you've been given something, well, let me say it this way, I always get coffee when it comes time for gift-giving and the like, and at my birthday and at Christmas time, well, my cabinet tends to be rather full of pretty nice quality coffee. As it turns out, I got a really nice bag of coffee that I don't get very often. It's from a place out in Colorado, and I've had two cups of that coffee, and my son has had two cups of that coffee, and my wife has had two cups of, maybe four cups of that coffee, I'm not sure, but I have been sharing this gift of mine. Allie said, stay away from your boxcar coffee, because, well, she wanted it, and I'm happy with that. I'm, you know, you get a good gift, and you want to share that, don't you? You want to share it. That's what Jesus was telling Laodicea here. He received a good gift. He overcame, overcame the things that the Lord allowed to come into his life. And he wanted to share that. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. As I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. You know, I, I like flipping that. Not that the Lord said it in any way wrong by any means, but let me say it to you that way because it gives a little bit of a spin on it. I, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me. 
Man, that touches me, man. And that is something that's not just emotionalism, not just something that hits me in the feels, man. That's something that is eternal in its power and eternal in its weight and eternal in its glory. First off, that he would even offer it, much less that I might attain it and that you might attain it. Jesus, when he sits on his throne, he wants to, well, as we might say today, he wants to pay it forward, what he was rewarded. And so... Is it not fitting that the reward that he shares with us, well, that we might lay hold of, that we would lay hold of it in a similar manner to how he laid hold of it uh, ourselves to share of that completion that the Lord is wanting to do as things are brought into our own lives, as sufferings take place and are presented to us that we might suffer as the captain of our salvation would suffer? You understand that doctrine. You understand that teaching in Scripture, what do we know? What do we know of suffering uh, for the Lord? Romans 8, 17, our spirit, the spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God, right? And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and something more, we are heirs of God and if, there's an if that's applied here, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. That as he overcame and sat in his father's throne, that we might also overcome and sit in his throne with him. Just as he was willing to suffer with the father. And the father did suffer when he sacrificed himself for mankind. Jesus suffered on the tree. Jesus suffered through walking through this life. But you can understand, parents, you understand. When your kids suffer, you suffer, don't you? You hurt when your children hurt. Jesus took a submissive place, and and that's how we can understand what that role is. But let's not forget that the Son of God was the only begotten Son to the Lord, to the Father Himself. And when He suffered, my goodness, the, the Father suffered. So they suffered together, didn't they? He suffered with His Father that they might be glorified together. We understand that's what Jesus' purpose was, was to glorify Him. Jesus was never lukewarm. Was never lukewarm in regards to His faith. Never lukewarm in regards to His obedience. His cooperation with His Father and seeing His work through. He was never threatened to be spewed out of His Father's mouth because they endured together. They suffered together. It was Jesus' nature to do so. Again, for time's sake, I'm going to move forward. I can point you to Psalm 113 and to 1 Samuel chapter 2. Both of them say very much similar things about the Lord God raising the poor out of the dust, lifts the needy out of the ash heap, that he may sit him with princes, with the princes of his people. And that indicates that there are those ones who are pulled out from his people. And the needy, not necessarily... Well, not necessarily the grandest and the greatest of in the natural world. Those ones who look to Him to satisfy their needs are brought up and out, not only for salvation, but are set in high places. Hannah bears testimony to that in First Samuel chapter two and verses six through eight. But again, I won't go there. It's Jesus' nature to share and share and share to the measure that we are willing to receive. To give and to give to the measure that we're willing to take from his hand. Not selfishly, but obediently. Receiving that grace as he wants to give to us. 
we are among those who can receive of his giving and his sharing nature. And the result we'll see in glory. Romans chapter 5 and verse 17 just reminds us that if by the one man's offense, Adam's offense, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace, who receive abundance of the gift of righteousness, will indeed reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Those ones in Laodicea, they felt that they had everything. They felt they lacked nothing. They didn't recognize that they were not doing the receiving that the Lord had lived for, died for, and provided for. They weren't willing to receive. They said, we're good. We have everything. We have no lack, no lack of anything. And that's why the Lord Jesus presented to them, you don't know the true meaning of everything. You don't recognize that the throne is waiting. My throne is waiting so that when I sit on it, well, any who will, any who will receive can sit on it with me. And so it is that we should. We should do as the Laodiceans were given to do. I'll wrap up with Colossians chapter 3 and 2 Timothy chapter 2. Those ones who are unwilling to see themselves as lukewarm, we must not be similar. We must not be unwilling to see uh, to see ourselves so. I thought I had it. There's 2 Timothy chapter 2, so I'll give that one to you. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. Simple as that sometimes. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we endure what he allows to come our way. If we endure the opportunities we have to overcome. If we endure those sufferings that are brought simply because we are children of God. And do so joyfully, looking for, well, looking for his hand in it. We'll reign with him. Reigning in this life, and that reigning in this life will be echoed in eternity. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1 gives us that direction. And I'll just read it to you. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above. Where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. And one of those things is that throne. That sitting down with him. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And if he has been your love, if he has been your desire, not only will we see him, but he will invite us to come and sit with him in his throne. It is to reign jointly with the Lord Jesus. That's what everything is. Those ones who thought that they needed nothing, they didn't recognize what everything was. They didn't recognize that everything isn't what's seen here. They didn't recognize that everything that we are pursuing and everything that we are desiring well, reflects in what we're doing in this place. There's no higher place than that throne of Jesus outside of the Father himself. And he calls us to that place. Saints lay hold of it. He offers it freely. May we overcome as him that overcomes did. May we overcome as, well, to the measure we can as Jesus did. That we might sit in his throne as he sat with his father. We'll wrap this up and complete this next week. And consider, well, where we might be, where we want to be. And how we might be him that overcomes.